0: Nobody on planet Earth was more horrified by the notion of Donald Trump as president. So writes Tim Miller in his new book, Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell. Miller was a longtime GOP operative, a spinmeister and dirt disher who worked for McCain and Romney and Jeb Bush presidential campaigns, and also served as a top spokesman for the Republican National Committee. But his revulsion towards Trump knew no bounds and caused him to sever ties with virtually everybody he used to work with. Miller's book seeks to answer an enduring question that persists to this day. Why did so many go along? I felt like everything I ever knew and believed about my country, my career, my colleagues were a lie, he writes. The Americans I most despised had taken over the country I loved, bringing almost everyone I had once looked up to along with them. We'll talk to him on this episode of Skullduggery. Hi. Do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution
1: of the United States. So help, so, help so, help God. God. so help me 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 God.
0: I'm Michael Izakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
2: I'm Dan Kleidman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a senior counsel at States United.
0: So really looking forward to this uh, conversation with Tim Miller, he is by far the most entertaining and funny and uh, insightful of all the never Trumpers out there. You know, he's a guy who was, as he will explain, part of the game for so many years, dishing dirt on Democrats, seemed to be a true believer. And yet with Donald Trump, you know, the scale fell from his eyes and uh, he has been absolutely relentless in his criticism of Trump.
3: I think the book, you know, you called it entertaining, which it is, and insightful. But I'm actually glad he wrote an entertaining, highly readable uh, book um, that that's also self-deprecating because he says he was part of the problem, um, in, in a sense, before the scales fell from his eyes. But I'm glad he wrote this kind of book because people will read it. And it is uh, really insightful. And Iskov, we remember from, you know, New- Newsweek days that, you know, it was really... Well-told stories like this, full of anecdotes and kind of really telling details that made you understand Washington or whatever it was that we were writing about. These kind of character studies, you know, where you understand in ways that are really memorable why people did the things they do. And I think it's masterful. I think it's a really, really well-done book.
2: I think to f- highlight some of the characters who I hope we're going to get to talk to him about, we've got uh, Elise Stefanik, Sean Spicer, and even more interesting, he talked to them. He actually had conversations. Some them. Some, some of them, them yeah. Right. Yeah. So the ones who would still talk to him. Elise
3: Stefanik uh, would not talk to him.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and tried to, you know, tried to really probe and ask them questions. And so the, the insight is unusually intimate and deep with a lot of these people. Before
0: we get to him, though, uh, a couple of January 6 matters uh, we should address. Uh, On the last podcast, I had said I didn't understand why the committee hadn't already subpoenaed Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel under Trump, who's at the center of a lot of the testimony, particularly from Cassidy Hutchinson. No sooner did I say that and the pod came out, the committee did subpoena Pat Cipollone. They must have been Uh, listening.
2: They also dropped a Bombshell with the subpoena, which is that we learned that Pat's name is Pasquale. I know, <laughs> I, and I got I got dinged with that on Twitter because I called him Patrick,
0: and it just you know once again a lesson: don't assume anything. Uh, his name is Pasquale. Well, that is, uh, it, and, and, uh, and I, I apologize. I, was thinking, I was thinking, for is misinforming that the, our listeners. Yeah, I was
3: thinking, is that the Italian? way of saying Patrick, but there is uh, Patricio. Patricio. Yeah. So, um, hmm, so maybe, one of, our, on every
2: count, maybe one of
3: our intrepid listeners can educate us. Get to the bottom on, of this, uh, yeah. of this
2: scandal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Skullduggery. You know
0: The question is, how is he going to respond to the subpoena? Will there be full blown testimony uh, or will it be partial testimony where he won't talk about anything? He says any of his conversations with Trump, which I suspect will be the case because Were he to testify about his conversations with Trump, it arguably could set a precedent that future White House counsels will not be excited about. But there's plenty that he can say about his dealings with Meadows, about his dealings with Tony Ornato, his dealings with the Trump lawyers, with John Eastman and and Rudy Giuliani. And I think that definitely will be of high interest uh, to the committee and can make a big difference.
3: Yeah, he could be a really powerful and important witness, I think he will, if he wants to testify, he'll be able to testify. And if he doesn't, he probably won't have to testify because it will get fought out in the courts and there's just not enough time on, on the calendar. And our colleague, John Ward, has been reporting this out and uh, talked to someone who at the Justice, uh, former Justice Department lawyer in the Office of Legal Counsel, who studied all of these executive privilege issues. And he made a, an interesting point. Which is, you know, because administrations change and Congress changes hands all the time. These cases get get litigated, and then whoever is in power is not in power, and they kind of get dropped. And there aren't really any appellate decisions. There's no kind of controlling legal authority, in a sense. And all you really have is, you know, what was in. You know this OLC opinion that addresses these issues. So it it may not get resolved. There are a lot of people out there who don't want it to get resolved. And maybe they have. I would think the committee would go to the White House and say, the president should waive the privilege here. And uh, he would do that. And that might put more pressure on him. Because I don't think Donald Trump owns the privilege. I think it's the, the current president who does. But we'll see how it plays out.
2: I was just going to add that, you know, like as Cip alone is making this decision, I, I have to say... I've been sort of looking at him through the lens of having just read Tim Miller's book and kind of trying to figure out which of the kind of taxonomies of Trump supporters Cipollone falls into. Tim Miller's book offers a lot of insight, I think, into what Cipollone is thinking and grappling with right now. And the one thing I would highlight that Tim mentions in his book and that is clearly going on right now in Trump world is the level of relentless disciplining that occurs amongst the loyal. For Trump, the threats and the promises that are being dangled in front of them. We know that Cassidy Hutchinson was, you know, kind of subtly threatened, or you know, kind of consistently told about her loyalty, you know, or praised for her loyalty. I'll bet the same thing is happening with Sipolone right now. Plus, he's got all sorts of ready-made excuses and off-ramps for, you know. F- cooperating with the committee. He can always just point to executive privilege, kind of squishy about whether or not there's any law or precedent on it. And Hey, presto! He's got a nice little compartment that he can put all of his concerns into. Well, I, I'm looking forward to his
0: testimony for another reason. Having botched his first name, I'm now eager to learn whether it's Cipollone or Cipalone. Um, it's been pronounced <laughs> both ways. Hopefully, if he testifies, we'll. Did learn we ever answer. figure
3: out if uh, Cassidy Hutchinson was 25 or
0: 26? he <laughs> <No, Isikoff. we laughs> didn't resolve that one either. Um, so many unanswered questions about. Can't these believe Liz hearings. Cheney didn't. Ask her that question, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, but before we get to Miller, uh, we had a couple more, a few more uh, Supreme Court rulings before they ended their term. Victoria, you wanna Justice pa- your- Justice Spicetti? What do you think? <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, I was like, uh, give I, us I,
2: your dissent. Uh, exactly. I, if we've got like two minutes for just you know, kind yeah, about of a, a primal 45 scream, forty-five seconds, I'd say. Forty-five seconds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, uh, a little, a little scream, a little weep. So in between the uh, the last time we spoke which was when the uh, when the Dobbs decision came down two later decisions and one future decision was teed up by the Supreme Court what's interesting amongst all three of them are the extraordinary reversion of the court to this kind of extreme historicism. And just to, to kind of put a pin on it, you know, in in the Kennedy case, which is the, uh, the, the First Amendment Establishment Clause case, which essentially held that a football coach who was leading, ostentatiously leading all of his or some of his players in prayer at the 50-yard line was not a violation of the Establishment Clause, overruled without using the actual words, a longstanding Supreme Court precedent known as Lemon, which was a way that the court for decades had evaluated whether or not a state's injection of religion into the public space constituted the establishment of religion getting to my point here. And in doing so, they said, we've really got to go back and look closely at history and and historical practice regarding religion. They did the same thing, obviously, in Bruin, which is the gun case. They did the same thing in Dobbs, which is the Supreme Court case. Essentially, they've created a constitutional jurisprudence where we are always locked into the law at exactly the moment it was enacted. So if it was enacted in 1880, we're stuck in 1880. If it was enacted in 1820, we're stuck in 1820. They've essentially kind of pulled the law back to this static historical vision of America, and it's a really kind of frightening prospect. I know that was kind of a little bit of a long rant. You probably might have preferred I screamed no, cried. No, no, no,
0: no. I just have one observation on the religious freedom case, which was about this coach who was praying at the 50-yard line, eagerly awaiting for the time when Muslims bring prayer rugs to the 50-yard line, let's say in Texas or Alabama, and Hasidic Jews start uh, davening at the 50-yard line, and there are court challenges to that. It would be interesting to see uh, if the Supreme Court yeah. sticks with the um, uh, ruling it
2: gave the other day or whether it has a different um, perspective. If I can, just because I don't want to lose this opportunity, uh, the, the Supreme Court ended its term also setting up possibly the most high stakes election case that they've had in probably decades. And that is the Supreme Court granted cert on a case arising out of North Carolina and out of North Carolina's redistricting efforts. But it is about to rule on something which is known as the independent state legislature doctrine, which sounds very kind of fussy and boring, but it basically turns on a provision in the Constitution which says that state legislatures can set the time, place, and manner of a federal election. And under the most extreme version of this doctrine, It essentially creates a place where state legislatures standing alone without the government and without court review essentially get to say exactly how elections are run.
3: Doesn't that mean, Victoria, that, say, Pennsylvania, just to pick a state legislature, could send an alternate slash fake slate of electors to Congress?
2: Because the state legislature acting alone gets to decide how the time, place and manner of elections are. But there
3: still could be federal court review of their actions, right?
2: To the extent that there's actually been federal law that's been enacted about it. But on the other hand, if there's a state law that the legislature, you know, kind of thinks is being misinterpreted by the secretary of state or misinterpreted by a local election administrator, then anything that the legislature says goes.
3: Did the Supreme Court take this because they, the conservatives have the votes to
2: possibly they they have the votes to to adopt the doctrine to adopt the doctrine it would be it would be an earthquake an earthquake in the way we understand the administration of elections in America. Look, just one quick
0: question on this. Some of us are old enough to remember Bush v. Gore, in which the Supreme Court determined that the way Florida was conducting its elections by recounting the votes at the request of the Gore campaign was an equal protection violation. So in order to adopt this, you know, independent state legislature theory, don't they basically Have to reverse or repudiate what they
2: ruled in Bush v. Gore. Well, Interestingly enough, the origins of the independent state legislature doctrine is from a Rehnquist concurrence in Bush v. Gore, where Rehnquist essentially offered his alternative kind of vision of why Bush v. Gore came out the way it is. So it is absolutely a a kind of I'm not going to say it's a reversal of Bush v. Gore, because, you know, like if you'll recall, at the end of Bush v. Gore, the Supreme Court says that its decision has no precedential value, which, of course, hasn't stopped hundreds of courts from subsequently citing it with precedential value. But it is it, the, the roots of this doctrine are from Rehnquist in Bush v. Gore. So
0: And I guess the argument from Rehnquist would be uh, it was the Florida Supreme Court that ordered the recount and it was not the legislature. So therefore, it was invalid and it was only the legislature that could do what it exactly. Uh, but but what if the legislature adopts rules that are that the court finds are an equal protection violation? What, what does it do then
2: to be clear the the elections clause, which allows state legislatures to set the time place and manner of elections, doesn't allow them to violate the federal constitution writ, ho- writ large and in addition, the clause clearly indicates that Congress can regulate regulations. so this essentially goes to the question of state law state thing and and state issues there's still the there's still an overlay of of federal election law.
3: Meanwhile, the, the the next Supreme Court term uh, is shaping up to be another blockbuster, blockbuster term um, with a lot of legal and judicial skullduggery, including uh, cases on affirmative action in college admissions. I think there's a gay rights case. Uh, so. There will be a lot to talk about uh, next term on this podcast. All right. We're
0: really in the legal constitutional weeds here. And I think we're taking away from the entertaining discussion. I had a story I wanted to to talk to to tell (laughs) about the
3: takings clause, Mike, uh, (laughs) Uh, of the Fifth Fifth Amendment. Uh,
2: Save it. Uh, By the way. There's a really important 1956 case that you'd like to discuss. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Enough. (laughs) This has got to stop.
0: Anyway, we've got Tim Miller. By the way, before we get uh, to Tim, next week is July 4th. So I think absent a a nuclear war or a Trump indictment, uh, we'll probably take the week off. No, Uh, Victoria, you're shaking your head. You want to do the the pot alone? uh, (laughs) Right. Um, But anyway, um, but we've got a good conversation coming up with Tim Miller. So let's get to it. Okay, we've now got with us Tim Miller, veteran Republican operative in the past and author of the new book, Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell. Tim, welcome back to Skullduggery.
1: Hey guys, I, I think that I mentioned Skullduggery, not the podcast, but the activity that. a yeah. couple times. I noticed that. I, you spelled, I was, you, you spelled it. You spelled it the wrong way. We, yeah, we spell spe- it with two L's. Did I spell it? Oh God! I spelled it the correct way. For the paperback,
0: you know, change the spelling and include a link to the pod. (laughs) Um, Anyway, look. Congrats on the book. It is a great read. Even though I have to say, I don't think I got like you know half of, more than half of your cultural references clearly reflecting your millennial upbringing. But, you know, look, the principal theme here is you were, as I mentioned, veteran GOP operative. You'd worked for all these Republican campaigns. You were an oppo guy. Um, You were Jeb Bush's chief spokesman during his presidential campaign. And you came to loathe Donald Trump in a way that I think, was pretty hardcore and- Bordering
1: on derangement.
0: Well, there is the, you know, folks on the right, Trump people will talk about Trump derangement syndrome, borrowing from a phrase that was used about Clinton derangement syndrome in the past. But look, your principal issue you're addressing here is, why did so many of your former colleagues not see what you saw? And fell in to become enablers of Donald Trump. What, in
1: short, is your answer? It's about self-justification. It's about the various types of self-justification. I, I, the book, if I was successful, uh, what I want—I mean, obviously, it's a gossipy politics book and mea culpa and you know all of that insidery story. But but I wanted it to have some universal universality to it, and and the theme is you know, what are the stories that we tell ourselves to justify going along with things that we know are kind of icky or immoral or unethical, or in the case of Donald Trump, like manifestly evil, how do we, how do people justify that? And and I thought that was what I could maybe uniquely offer. there has been a ton of Trump books, obviously, and there've been a ton of books about all the crazy stuff he did and all the crazy stuff people behind the scenes did. But I didn't feel like anybody had done a really good job of explaining why these people kept going along with, you know, the Jonathan Martin book comes out two weeks ago, two weeks ago. And it says, you know, Kevin McCarthy, all these guys knew behind the scenes, Lindsey Graham, all they, they all knew that Trump was insane and yet they're still going along with it. And so I I felt like it kind of raised that question still of like, why? And so I interviewed a bunch of my friends and, and what it came down to was, these same kind of rationalizations that we all use in our life, just, just really magnified in a very intense, you know, environment and, in a very high stakes environment, uh, you know, compartmentalization, ambition, career ambition, you know, financial ambition. And, and I sort of, category, and they're different for different people, but I, you know, I kind of explored all of them to try to you know explain better why the people who knew better went along with it. I actually want to back up a little bit here, but before we get
3: into some of these kind of amazing case studies and archetypes, uh, which we're going to talk to you about, the the first half of the book is really about, partly about how the sort of Washington political culture, sometimes known as our town, um, (laughs) kind of laid the groundwork, kind of turned politics into fertile ground for a Donald Trump to come along. And you were for most of your career, very much part of that culture. You were playing the game, as you called it. And that gave you, I think, some unique insights into what happened to other people when Trump came along. So talk about that a little bit. Just tell us a little bit about your personal experience and what you learned about yourself and what you did as you were reporting this book.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the old solipsist story, like you only really know your own motivations that you own, that you exist. Right. And so I, I felt like I had to, if I was going to, to really understand why my former friends, or in some cases, current friends and colleagues, former colleagues went along with Trump, I would understand like why I did similar things, right. That you can get a sense for how people can go along with evil or immoral acts by, by looking at the times that, that you did. And, and so I, I wanted to reflect. So the first half of the book to your point is, is two things basically. One, looking at myself, how did I justify the, I think the most stark example is I'm gay, I'm married, I have a kid. Uh, you know, I worked for people that wanted to ban gay adoption, ban gay marriage. Right. You how called did I do that?
3: Compartmentalization, your superpower.
1: Yeah, right. I I didn't even think about it. I went back and read an interview of myself. It was so cringy where someone asked me about this back in 2009, I guess. Because I'd come out of the closet and was vaguely, you know, D.C. Not famous, famous, but people in D.C. knew I was like an out gay Republican. You knew one out gay Republican, but it was like Ken Melman who had retired or me me basically in the D.C. class. So I, I got interviewed about this. Like, how do you do it? And I went back and read my answer and it was just you know, a very long, you know, rambling answer that came down to, I compartmentalized it because I want my candidates to win. And this is a game and I'm playing a game to win. And uh, I, I gave, I offered some other justifications, you know, which is, I like the candidates on other issues. And, and that's true. But, but like the crux of my answer was basically, I want to win. I, this is what, this is my job. My job is to help candidates win. And so I think that that experience, you know, gives me an insight into kind of the mindset of the people that went along with Trump. But in addition to it, to your point in the question, I think the other insight that it provides is kind of how this culture allowed for Trump to come along. So because I wasn't the only one that was doing this, you know, this was completely widespread and and particularly Republican, but on both sides in the political campaign culture, this game mindset, Michael Lewis mocks it in a 96 in his book about the 96 campaign, you know, uh, it's losers, which is this big takedown on how stupid this culture is. He had the kind of clarity of an outsider to go look at this, which was, you know, influenced me as I was t- trying to write this, going back and read, reading that book. And, and so, I, you know, I came to this conclusion that it's like, there are obviously a ton of reasons why for Trump's rise, right? Uh, it's not just that this isn't the only one, but it shouldn't be a surprise that this culture you know, resulted in somebody who is skilled at being a television game show host, being able to manipulate it better than a bunch of wonks and nerds in Washington, D.C. And so, you know, I I think that 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 isn't maybe not the number one reason why Trump was successful, but it certainly was an enabling element to his success.
2: One possible surprise is that the rise of someone like Trump didn't happen sooner, you know, uh, America has always and, and and while on the one hand, your book really kind of extols or has a vision of a fairer, kinder, more substantive, you know, form of politics and form of elections. The truth is, American politics has has always and, and the American populace has always had a tinge of this kind of Trumpism. What do you think? Over the arc of your career changed? what made Trump yeah. actually finally possible?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I really tried to focus on stuff that I saw firsthand you know again, in the same way that I didn't want to try to compete with Woodward and Costa on the behind the scenes. I don't you know want to keep, compete with historians on you know what was the Goldwater campaign like you know before I was born. So I, I'm sure there was some of this. but what I, what I saw firsthand from '07 up till, now, or I guess my first campaign was in 02, but my first presidential campaign was in 07, 08, until now is just the nature of the, of the media environment. And, you know, this sort of, you know, gamesmanship mindset of politics, where the DC kind of celebrification, celebrity culture, political celebrity culture, where the, you know, horse race culture, you kind of went from being, you know, a, a always part of politics to being the sole purpose of people playing politics. I think that part of that is due to the rise of ideological media and social media, you know, that, which was supercharged by social media. I do a whole chapter on, you know, how I saw the the monster of the conservative media explode between 2007 and and 2016 and how I was a big part of that working with those, those guys. So I, I think that the media culture played a big part of this. And, and I I think that, uh, the polarization, you know, in the country, I I think if you look back, right. It's not as if Lee Atwater wasn't doing skullduggery, right. But the, the parties were more heterodox at that time. I think that the leaders were making choices that were more, you know, and it's, it's a little bit cliche, but it's cliche because it's true. Uh, You know, George HW Bush, you know, was certainly a hard nosed political competitor. But he also believed that he had a responsibility, right, to the public, you know, and and there was this push and pull. And I think that by the time you get to, you know, right now where the push and pull is gone. uh, You know, I think that if you look at the most successful politicians right now, particularly on the right, their job is to be a performer, to troll. I mean, Ted Cruz is literally has a higher ranked podcast than this one, probably. <laughs> and then the bulwark crowd, right? I mean, these guys have are like performers. I, Ted Cruz isn't, you know, when when there's a shooting happening, when there's a when there's something that happens, Ted Cruz's first response, you know, isn't what George H.W. Bush's would be. It isn't this notion of well, what what can we do that might help change this? It's okay, how can I what can I do to make the libs look bad? How can I own the libs on this? You know, how can I tweet something that's going to get a lot of attention? Get me on Fox News tonight. Uh and so, you know, I think that there was this basically doom loop between us strategists who who were not, you know, didn't care that much about the underlying policy, the rise of of ideological and social media. And, you know, candidates, I think, you know, supercharged by Trump determining that they could just leave the governing part of their job to tertiary, secondary or tertiary or lower.
0: Let's talk about some of the people you write about in the book. And there's, you know, quite a few uh, sort of fascinating caricatures, uh, character <laughs> studies. Um, one that uh, you know leaps out is Elise Stefanik, yeah. um, the Congresswoman from upstate New York, who started out a uh, moderate Republican and has become a full-scale Trumper, MAGA person. You had a relationship with her. Uh, I didn't realize uh, that she was the author of the famed, you know, Republican autopsy after the 2012 campaign in which the uh, GOP was going to make a pivot to being more open to minorities and uh, immigration reform to bring in Latinos. And, you know, within a few years, she becomes, you know, she goes full MAGA. Now, you knew her. You had worked with her. Explain best you can the arc of her evolution.
1: Okay. I'm going to do that. I want to add one more sentence to the previous question, because I think this is important. It's yeah. easy to roll your eyes and be like, Tim, you know, the solution to this is, is, is we need politics to become a C-SPAN symposium, right? Where nobody, where we just talk about policy and the issues. Right. And that's not, it's not what I'm saying. Like what I'm saying, and, and this is directly tied to at least is, is that people, you know, we need to call on ourselves who are anyone who's part of politics to understand that this is a competition and you can compete to win on behalf of your side, but, that you have to do so within certain boundaries of integrity and actually caring about what the impact is on the people that you you know are purporting to serve and, and i think that, that this is what the part the second part you know the balancing act is the part that has gotten lost and if you looked at elise we were together i was on that autopsy and i'd used it was it was hard to decide who to pick for caricatures I, you know it felt mean to pick certain people at random right um, for my life uh, and so i wanted to use the autopsy because I found it so interesting. I was there, you know, it was this vision of a Republican party that was more welcoming. You know, it was, you know, kind of a reskinned, compassionate conservatism uh, that was going to broaden the party in the suburbs, help diversify the party. Uh, Elise was, you know, the editor of that, of that product. Um, And, you know, Ari Fleischer was working on that. He also went MAGA, Ryan Striebus and Sean Spicer went full Trump, as everyone knows. Myself and Sally Bradshaw were part of that. We both went never Trump. Sally was Jeb's top advisor. She's out of the, she owns a bookstore now in Tallahassee. She's gone so far out of the game. So, so what was, what was it that took us all these different paths, Elise in 2014, decides to run for Congress as a Tim Miller, moderate, squishy, John Huntsman, compassionate Republican, right? It's like <laughs> pro climate change, pro gay, pro immigration reform. Every, all of my friends, all my millennial squishy, moderate friends were like, man, this is a candidate that I can, this is a campaign I can be excited for. That so at least didn't just go from being kind of a nondescript Republican to MAGA. She was like on the cutting edge of this more forward looking vision for the party. And she she refused to say Trump's name in 2016 into her time in Congress. I I had a friend who she recruited. We had a mutual friend who she recruited to run in 2017 to to run during the 2018 cycle after Trump was president, because we because according to him, she said, we need more people like us, quote unquote, anti-Trumpers in the caucus. So, so this lasted, you know, for uh, well into Trump's term that, that this was her vantage point. And she essentially over a series of, of events that, that took place, you know, determined that her ambition, if the ambition that she had was going to be met, she had to go full whole hog with Trump and she did it. And she fired people that had been with her from the start, you know, because they were telling her that she was going too far she flipped on a dime and it was because she had, she had this vision of herself as an ambitious politician who thought, you know, I'm going to let this Trump wave pass. I'm going to keep my head down, you know, and then we'll be back on the ascent after 2020. But then after spending time with voters, she reckon in her district, she recognized that wasn't true. Like the, the, actually the only way that she was going to achieve power was to go full Trump. And so that's what she did. And so her friends try to, to their defense of her is like, she's just doing what her voters want, but that's, that's not really true. Like what's true is she's just doing what she needs to do. If she wants to be revered by her voters, <laughs> like there is a different path that she could have taken to survive her neighboring Congressman John, John Katko did just that but she went this path because of, because of her ambition. And, and sadly it's working for her. I, I think she's going to be a speaker. Yeah.
0: But that suggests that she doesn't believe what she's saying of course now.
1: Not.
0: And you think that's the case? Of
1: course not. I, well, I think that there are two, one of the other categories that I get into in the book is this de- the demonizer category, which this was the thing that surprised me the most interviewing my old friends for the book, m- mostly the ones who weren't on the record. So I, I, I sort of, express their views for them. But there is this well of anger in Republican Washington that I didn't recognize at the time. I thought that when we were going after Obama, it was a little bit of for, for kicks, you know, I I disagree on balance. I disagreed on Obamacare, but you know, me and whoever would fight Tommy Vitor would fight on Twitter and then go have a beer after, right? Like I I didn't hate Obama. I, I disagreed with him on a few things. This hatred for the left was much more widespread than I than I recognized um, among the Republican political class. and And I think that has grown exponentially in the Trump years. And so I do think, well, at least iffenek like, does not believe her policy pivot to be more nationalist or whatever. I do think that she, like many of the other people I talked to, you know have become so aggrieved by the treatment that republicans have gotten by the media and by the friends in their lives and by whatever elite cultural institutions that they've begun to to genuinely despise the left and so and so i think that does drive some of her actions as well not in the policy space but in the you know when she's whatever slagging the media or slagging never trumpers and and using really harsh rhetoric like she does now i I think that that does come from a real reservoir of grievance so let me ask you about another one of your
3: character studies which i found just endlessly entertaining but also (laughs) insightful and that is sean spicer and it, reading that chapter, sorry,
0: I, I have to laugh at the mere mention of the name. But go ahead.
1: This this was not the this was not the heaviest chapter. Uh, so maybe this was kind of a little light popcorn to keep people enter, entertained as we
3: moved through this. I almost got the name wrong, and 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 you can explain that in a second. Uh, you know, we used to say at Newsweek that like everything in life is the high school cafeteria. And there is a, you know, this, you start this chapter with him at Connecticut College, and he's the kid that everyone, you know, when he would walk into the room, they would say, Ugh Spicer. And the chapter is called Spineless Nerd Revenging Team Player. So tell us about that archetype and about Sean Spicer.
1: Yeah, I think this this is uh, very many people in D.C. and, And for a while, it was more, you know, it was more funny than it seemed dangerous, because Most people who succeed in Washington were not at the cool kids table in your high school cafeteria, right? It's just, that's just not the type of person that's attracted to politics and government. And so, you know, it was always funny to me that when in your, in your twenties in Washington, a lot of, you know, the, the intern culture and young, you know, 20 something Washington culture, it's like their second college you know, people are partying, right? Because they did, and they worked hard. They were hard workers in high school and college. And they're like, oh, this is my moment. Girls want to flirt with me. Your boys want to flirt with me now. And I, you know, I I was a dork in college and that becomes intoxicating, right? Like you, all of a sudden, you know, uh, particularly in a recent area with social media, they're like, people recognize me at the bar from my Twitter feed or, you know, I've, I, have uh, <laughs> i like all these sorts of things I'm getting flirted with and I'm getting invited to these parties and there's seat celebrities there. And, you know, Jake Tapper just DM would me to ask me about my <laughs> boss, right? Like, like this, this becomes intoxicating <laughs> to people, particularly those who did that for that, that wasn't their experience growing up. And so Sean is just the classic example of this. And the funny, you know, story that I relate is in college that he ran for class president, every year, I think, or three out of the four years and lost every time. And the paper during his last campaign called him Sean sphincter as a joke. It was a, (laughs) but it was an accident. I think that was the inside joke among the, among the staff at the school paper that it got into print one day and Sean lost it. But this, you know, spreads across campus and, you know, senior year people call him Sean sphincter all the time when he's walking around, you know, that has an impact on people. I, you know, I I think you pretend like it wouldn't bother him, but it did. And, And so he gets to Washington. This is not to say that he's not ideological, that he's not what pro-life or doesn't on balance think that the government, you know, should be smaller. But he, you know, he is another one of these guys that's in this for the sport, right? Like he's picked his team and, and he gets to Washington and all of a sudden, you know, he he is getting invited to parties and he does, you know, uh, you know, is starting to get more respect than he did in college, you know, to a certain degree. And then Donald Trump comes calling. And, you know, whereas my first instinct is how could somebody like Spicer, who I worked with, who, who was just a normal establishment Republican, why would he want to be the spokesman for Donald Trump? Like, to me, that was insane. As I kind of talked to mutual friends and, and thought about this, I, the answer was obvious. One of my friends said to me, well, there was no chance he wasn't going to do it. Like, this was the point. Like He got to be the press secretary. He gets to be on the dais at the correspondence dinner. He gets invited to every party that network executives are calling him. You know, when it's over, he gets to go on Dancing with the Stars. So, what's this? What does he have to do in exchange for that? Well, he has to kind of embarrass himself a little bit. But he was used to that. You know, I think that this underlying kind of desire for to, to be seen and recognition, you know, Sean is kind of the most clownish example of it. But but it's a widespread affliction of people in DC. By the way, me include and me self self, self included.
2: The person or the the profile that seems to cut to the quick or hurt the most is Carolyn Wren, who was a, a longtime friend of yours. Tell us about her.
1: Yeah. So Caroline, she she I was so happy that she agreed to participate because we'd had a little bit of a falling out. And but I was like, this is if I really want to cut to understand how people could have gone along with us. Like sh- There were, could not be a more diametrically opposite trajectory than mine and hers. We worked together on John Huntsman's campaign. We're very close friends. She was a moderate Republican. She worked for Olympia snow and Lindsey Graham and the David Dewhurst who primarily, you know, Ted Cruz from the center, right? Like the, uh, the, your classic moderate Republican. So was her whole career. Uh, same with mine. And, and Trump comes in in 2016 and she gets invited to be the, the person in charge of fundraising for the convention. And I, you know, she kept the job when Trump had it. I was like, I don't know, what are you doing? But we we still kept talking. But then increasingly she gets more and more ingrained in the Trump world. And and over the time, we just eventually kind of have this falling out. And so as I started to write this book, I I was like, I needed to call her. I was like, we need to spend a lot of time together because I need to understand why you did what you did. Because maybe I just misunderstood all of my friends this whole time. And I was kidding, you know, that this was one theory I had. Maybe I was kidding myself. Maybe this was all there. They all had this kind of cruel under, belly underneath them. And, and I just, you know, was, was out to lunch or, uh, you know, maybe there's something else I'm not seeing. And so we spent a lot of time together, had a lot of drinks and just hashed it all out. And, um, what I just mentioned about the demonizing is one thing that was a big revelation for her uh, that during that conversation, as well as many others, how much she loathed the left in ways that I found, I find completely irrational, but, but again, it is explanatory for why people are doing it. But I found all these other similar things, similar rationalizations that other people used. you know, that she just didn't really pay attention to bad news about Donald Trump. Like I'd ask her about big news events and she wouldn't even have known, right? Because she has started to consume conservative media. Uh, she just didn't really know what else she was supposed to do. She kept kind of going up this ladder, right? Uh, the career ladder. And You get another job, you get another job and higher, and more money and more close to the president. And, and so you kind of, you justify it. It was fun. You know, th- there's a sense that, that you're in the mix and, you know, you're behind the scenes, you're backstage, you're on Air Force One. You know, all of this stuff combines together and you begin to convince yourself that, that this is right. You get inside this bubble and this social uh, setting where everyone around you is for him. And it becomes the other guys that are bad. They're unfair. They're mean. They're, they're the ones that are cruel. They're, they're attacking us. And so she just gets totally wrapped up in this.
2: Well, there's one particular anecdote or one, one thing that you observed during your meetings with her, which really struck me. And it is the number of texts and phone calls she got. (laughs) every minute that she was talking to her and the extraordinary infrastructure that has developed around disciplining and maintaining loyalty and cohesion to the tribe. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I I think that that speaks also to the excitement of it. There's a little bit of, you know, protection, right? Uh, And she was, she would never over, despite the fact that she was very raw and candid with me and, and revealed, I think a lot of stuff about herself, she still wouldn't admit that Joe Biden won the election. (laughs) You know, I, this is, this is what you about to your point about the discipline, Uh, to your point about the access, uh, you know, she's getting texts. Uh, she showed me her phone. One time. I don't, I don't remember the number, but uh, you know, for uh, she had hundreds of texts, like her phone's ringing the whole time that you're there. You're in, you're, you're in this circle, right. Where, where it's rich people, it's high dollar donors. It's, it's, it's cabinet secretaries. It's the former presidents, all of his advisors, they're all speaking to you. It can be intoxicating. And so, you know, I, I, I felt like I really only had one chance to kind of break through to her and, and tried to speak to her about about what happened on January 6th and, and tried to just kind of turn the tables a little bit and say, you know, she... You know the the whole if the whole mindset is that it's, that Donald Trump isn't actually the cruel one that he cares about his people and that it's us that are mean for being mean to them and and you kind of get sucked into that cult. Like how does that jive with the fact that these you know these supporters of his died you know in on January sixth that some of them's lives are being ruined by going to jail you know all in service to his lie? And we went back and forth on that for a long time and she got pretty emotional talking about it. But it, it, I just. I just couldn't crack her. I just couldn't crack her in the end.
0: Although most of your, you know, character studies revolve around some version of money and power, right? Um, and access. And access or proximity to proximity power. power. Yeah, or right. proximity to power. Yeah. To power. Yeah. I you know, I did not sense that with her as much, right? That there's something else there
1: that was yeah, driving her. That's right. And I think that the access side, it's not money and power. It's this access and this excitement, you know, this being in the mix. That was also true, for, I think, for rights. The rights wanted the access to power too, but there's an excitement about, about it. But the other part is, yeah, I, I think this is why I think she was more of a stand-in for the Trump person in everybody's life <laughs> that that they can't quite figure out because it had become... Quasi-religious, I guess, I, I, or, or at least religious in the sense of the Crusades, right? Like it, it becomes so tribal. The other tribe is so awful that anything that, that bothers you or in, anything that you're aggrieved about, that someone somewhere that some liberal somewhere has done is like more evidence that Donald Trump is right, that they need to be taken down a peg. And that's the hard thing to break, you know, and that's literally like trying to tell, you know, somebody that their religion is wrong.
0: So let me ask you a question that I think I feel I have to ask all you never Trumpers. Sure, You were a veteran Republican operative for many years, and presumably you believed certain things, you know, cutting taxes, strict constructionists for the Supreme Court, muscular foreign policy, border security. Yet you and many of your fellow never-Trumpers have been so relentlessly critical of Trump for very good reasons. It begs the question, do you still believe what you used to believe? And if so, can you see how some people might rationalize saying, well, yes, Trump is outrageous and preposterous, but he is achieving certain policies or he's pushing certain policies that I believe in?
1: Yeah. It does, and do you have the zeal of the convert? <laughs> in a way, <laughs> uh, good question. Uh, the, well, the book would have been twice as long if I got into every policy issue, so I ended up cutting it. You know, because I was like, I wanted this to be more about the DC political culture. Maybe I'll write a, a sequel. But what I make note of I- in the book is that the people that I'm talking about are not the true believers, right? Like, you're, if you are a pro life absolutist, and that is what motivates you to be in politics, I, under- I understand why you went along with Donald Trump. And I, and I, and this book isn't about why, why they made that sacrifice. I could disagree with it. I think on balance maintaining our democracy was more important, but I I get, I understand that that was not most of the people that I talked to, right. Most of the people uh, who, again, on balance, like me, I am, you know, on the center right side of the pro-life issue. I'm not, I don't think we should have five week abortion bounties or whatever Texas is doing, but I, you know, I would vote for a 20 week abortion ban or something to that effect. I, uh, so I think on balance, the, the government's too big. Right? I think I'm, I'm for school choice on balance. So like, I'm still for some of these things, but it it has caused me to reflect on just the broader conservative movement and culture and, and, and update my views on certain things. And, and not in a, not in a pandering sense, but just in a way of, there were some issues I was just for, because it was what my team team was for. You know, and I didn't think that deeply about it. That doesn't reflect well on me. I'm just being honest. Like I was a hack. I was an operative. And I think that a lot of the people around me were. I had I had views on certain issues, strong views. You know, I was more moderate on immigration. I was more moderate on gay issues, obviously um, liberal throughout my time in Republican politics. Other things things that I would pretend to care about? Like, do I care that much if Joe Biden raises the carried interest tax on these assholes in New York? I don't don't know. I don't care that much about this. Like the top tax bracket is the top tax bracket being increased. You know, that's something I would have ranted about in the Obama years. Is that that big of a deal in the face of the threats that we're facing? I I, I don't think so. You know, is there there something to be said about the fact that, you know, while I'm pro-life, Uh, Do I now look at my former colleagues and think, man, okay, well, maybe we do agree narrowly on certain abortion matters, but I'm reflecting differently on, on this whole, you know, on the, on the whole movement on the, if you're pro-life, what should we, we, are we really doing, you know, vaccine conspiracies? Are we really, you know, banning women from traveling across state lines? Are we really, you know, completely shutting out refugees? You know, are we giving no offering no support to women you know, who are, who are going to be facing really challenging decisions. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, I've reflected on on some of that and and look at it more negatively than I did at the time while not really changing too many of my underlying views, but more changing my priorities and my sense of the negative elements of the, of the right. So Tim, I want to ask you about
3: another episode in your, your journey, and that is your cultivation of one of the more colorful, but pernicious uh, characters of the Trump era, and that is Steve Bannon. So talk a little bit about your relationship with Bannon, why you pursued him, uh, how you feel about that now. And then I have a follow-up on Bannon, a a particular cultural insight of his that I thought was fascinating, but go ahead.
1: Yeah. So just real quick, Bannon and Jen Sr.'s profile on him in The Atlantic is amazing. and I think she writes this. He's, He's likable. In yeah. a weird way, like, yep. you know, you can have a drink with him and he's gossipy and, and smart. He's not, you know, it's not like Dan, but I can't imagine having a drink with Dan Bongino. Like what are me and Dan Bongino going to talk about? <laughs> you know, he's a buffoon, right? Like Bannon is, is different than that. Right. And so, you know, we had a meeting What it was more of just this at the time it was, I forget what it was. I think it was some libertarian candidate and in, in a race that I was working on that we were trying to take out, so that the Republican, you know, so they wouldn't undermine the Republican candidate. I think was the was the impetus for the first meeting, and we hit it off. And I, I would be lying if I'm saying I didn't think that I wanted to cultivate him because I thought it'd be good for my candidates to be able to drop hits on our opponents in Breitbart. And so we maintained a relationship for years. We'd text, I, not it's not like we are close friends. I never, I don't think I ever had a one on one dinner with them, but but we would text and email and call from time to time when it was relevant. And I, and I look back on that now and it just goes back to my earlier addendum to my point about, about playing this game. And I say, okay, I was trying to help my candidates. I understand my reason for doing it, but I didn't reflect at all on, am I being corrupted by this? Like, like, is it really necessary? Is it really worth it? You know, and to help continue to give credibility and credence and, and eyeballs to a site that if, even if the material I was sending him, wasn't, Noxious and racist. Uh, the other material on the site was, and I look back on that and think that uh, that what happened was that I got c- corrupted by him, not the other way around. I wasn't using him; he was using me. And I think this is that is a little bit of a synecdoche for the whole party, right? And uh, Matt Boyle, who's at Breitbart, called me after the book came out and said, "You got this exactly right." Like, like all of these establishment guys who think they're using Breitbart have gotten used by them. The whole party is Breitbart now, and yet they're still playing ball with them. And so I, I think that. That was just a lesson for me as, as I reflected and, and shouldn't have been, I don't know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> shouldn't have been that deep of an insight, obviously, in retrospect, um, but, but yeah. Yeah, and, and so his insight that I
3: thought was really fascinating uh, was this idea of centering the commenters, the Breitbart commenters. And, you know, anybody who's worked in a news organization knows that when you write about politics, there are all these commenters. Some of them are, you know, are fine and interesting and edifying, but there's also a sewer And tell us about what he meant by centering the the commenters and what that insight was.
1: Yeah. His insight was basically the, and he called them the hobbits at the time. And then when Hillary did basket of deplorables, he updated it to deplorables and hobbits, but you know, the the hobbits that comment, and he says it with love on the Breitbart site are their are their audience and it's their army. And so, you know, uh, those of us who were in political establishment types, yeah, we always said, we don't read the comments under an article. I, I tell my candidates that, don't read the comments. It's the insane people that comment on articles. And that was just the common conventional wisdom. Bannon's insight was the opposite. He's like, no, those are the people that we want to excite. And so if, if we write an article about how... You know, I'm trying to think of one of the things that they got all read up. was the, the yogurt. They had a big thing about how the yogurt, you know, was infiltrating the country with Muslims. Um, that was a big thing on Breitbart for a while. The, yogurt? the ground zero what? mosque, Chobani, Chobani. They had a big anti-Chobani thing for a while. Uh, the yogurt the ground, maker, yeah. Yeah, the, the yogurt maker, the ground zero mosque. You know, if the commenters are really excited about the ground zero, let's give them more ground zero mosque content. If the co- commenters are really excited about illegal immigrants, you know, you know, really elevating an undocumented immigrant murder somebody, then let's like flood the zone with, with these stories. And that gave him power because it brought more people to the website and it made them actually reflective of what voters wanted. And and it put our candidates out of touch with that. And, And so what ended up happening is again, there's this magnet where, where you can see it in any of the Republican candidates the last 20 years, they start more and more kind of appealing to these extreme, Ideologies that are in the comment sections of Breitbart. The techies call it user engagement.
0: <laughs> so we've had a few weeks of these absolutely jaw-dropping hearings from the January 6th committee. With all this additional new evidence and testimony about Trump being informed, there were weapons at the... Uh, At the rally that day, uh, the Justice Department people describing the relentless pressure they got from him to overturn the results of the election, having to threaten to resign if he went through with his plans. Do you have any sense whether this is penetrating among the people that you're writing about in this book?
1: I think a little bit, but only in the way of... It's only penetrating the way of, I wonder if this can be a, an exit ramp to Ron DeSantis, right? I don't think that it's penetrating in the way that my, their consciences are now so shocked that they will now be Tim Miller the next time if it's Donald Trump as the nominee. Again, maybe a handful of people. And I'm hoping part of the hope for writing this book is that I can nudge some of, of my old friends that direction. But I think that what, what you saw on January 6th is very parallels what we see in a day after Cassidy Hutchison testimony that they you know, their consciences come out of the compartments that I'm writing about in the back of their brain. They start to think, man, can I, can, is there an exit ramp here? Can we finally shun Trump? Can we move on to something a little bit more manageable? And, you know, and then a week goes by two weeks go by the, the seriousness of it dulls in their heads. And, you know, you just move forward. You have to, you know, devote the all of the rationalizations that have gotten them this far with Trump are still operative, right? They still need the Breitbart comment section for power. You know, they still want to be in the mix. They still want to have, you know, they're still ambitious.
0: But if Trump does fade and, you know, the mantle is inherited by a DeSantis or a Tom Cotton or, a Mike Pompeo or a Mike Pence, where does that leave you?
1: Oh, anybody that supported Donald Trump in 2020 showed such reckless disregard for the country that I could never support them again. Uh, I'm going to be the old man in the nursing home when somebody's coming, you know, someone walks through the hallway. I'm going to be like that one, that person was for Trump. So uh, (laughs) I'm a I'm a no on any of the people that that supported Trump last. Is there
0: anybody? Are you still a Republican?
1: No, no, no. I, I wrote a uh, goodbye to all that article, which I, I kind of re- regret not like making as an afterward to the book. I wrote an article about this right before January 6th. Actually, I was like, I, I saw the writing on the wall. I saw it was coming. I didn't know how horrifying it was going to be, but uh, I, 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 I saw, I so I wrote this article explaining why I'd left the party. And, and it was basically my answer to the question you gave earlier, which is that my views on the issues have changed on the margins. My priorities have changed. The things that are important to me have changed. And as long as this party is in league with extremists and anti-democratic forces and bigoted forces and nationalist forces, I'm not going to be for it. And so I don't, you know, look, I don't see this Ron DeSantis. I think any of these guys would be marginally better than Trump because he's because of his psychopathy. But but Ron DeSantis is making all the same mistakes, all the red flags that I'm writing about in this book. Ron DeSantis is doing. I maybe he believes this stuff. I don't know, Ron, you know, but Mike Pence is doing all the things that I'm guarding against right now. Shouldn't he be testifying in front of the committee? Shouldn't he be speaking his truth right now? He's not speaking truth. He's still covering for Donald Trump. Uh, you know, uh, he'll he'll make a comment about January 6th, but he's still trying to appeal to the vote to, to these Trump voters. The, 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 the mob that, that Trump rose from is in charge of this party. The Breitbart comment section is in charge of this party. And until somebody can break them for, of it. No, I'm, I mean, sure. If Liz Cheney was the nominee. Sure. I could be for Liz Cheney next time. But Liz Cheney's not walking through that door. Okay, Uh, so, uh, you know, I I don't see it happening. And worth remembering, at least Stefanik has her old
0: job as chair of the Republican conference. Uh, Anyway, Tim Miller, um, the book is Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell. It is a great read. So, Tim. Thanks again. Dude, thank for you guys for having us. me.
1: Hope people enjoy the book, and um, we'll come back and do a little like uh, hot stove politics stuff in the fall. <laughs> something <laughs> a little more fun. Excellent. We, we, we right, definitely will. Good.